At this time, we are pleased to welcome all of our guests as well as our membership to this special part of our divine worship, and that is the study of the Word of God. And that study today is going to be led by Pastor Terry Johnson of Tacoma Park, Maryland. We are pleased to have Pastor Johnson. He is not just a friend, but a special friend of mine and of the people of God in every place. Pastor Johnson, I thought that instead of reading where you were born and where you went to school and introducing you in the usual way, you might answer in your own words today. Where were you born? <laughs> I was born in a little city called Portland, Oregon, but I have to tell you this, that my family is originally from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That's where all my brothers and sisters were born and, and everyone, my uh, parents were born there, and uh, my dad, after the end of World War II, uh, since he could speak a little French, a little Creole, he was stationed in France, and when they brought them back, they stopped in the port of Portland. And he had seen something he had never seen before, and it was called mountains. And those who are from Louisiana, the area, you know there is not that many mountains. And the mountains had snow on them. And he couldn't understand why in the world in July would these mountains still have snow on them. And so he had said, if I ever get married, I'm going to bring my family back here. And so um, I was uh, one of the ones that came back, but I was born there in Portland, Oregon. That's how we ended up there. Well, thank you, Pastor Johnson. I think we may have some folk from Louisiana here. Anybody from Louisiana congregation? Amen. Yeah, I knew that. I just wanted to give them a chance to <laughs> right. identify with you. Yes. Now, uh, your schooling was in the Portland area or elsewhere? It was in the Portland area, um, and, and you had an influence. I mean, you probably don't even remember this. No. Uh, the Aeolians, a singing group from the, uh, Oakwood College had, uh, in the 70s, had visited Portland, and uh, Dr. Rock, you were with the group. Uh, my mom is known for her cooking, being from Louisiana, and so all special guests would always be invited to our house for a meal. And so Dr. Rock uh, attended... You, you don't have to tell everything. <laughs> go ahead. All I can tell, there, there was no sin in the pot, what he ate. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> and uh, I joke and say, uh, you know, in Louisiana, being a vegetarian means you don't eat possum. And so uh, we have to fix that. But uh, you were there, and, and you told me something uh, that stood out to me. You said, son, I want to see you at Oakwood College one day. You will never know the influence. And up in that time, no one in my family had ever even been to college. Mm. And that was something that stuck in my mind. And so when I made a college choice, uh, Oakwood College was a college that I chose to go to, but you were already gone by that time. I see. Well, tell us now about your life after Oakwood. Yes. Um, um, prior to Oakwood, I had served in the military, United States Air Force, as the uh, President's Honor Guard for President Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. What yeah. does an honor guard do? An honor guard, if you look on the uh, photograph there, but I know those who are um, um, uh, listening by radio, they can't see that. Uh, but we're the men and women who carry the flags, and it boils down to this. We're the ones that make the president look presidential. We stand behind him. We, we do all the fun stuff that really just makes him look like he's important. <laughs> Sounds like important to me, doesn't it? <laughs> That's it. 
Congratulations. And since then? Since then, um, I uh, did something that no honor guard had um, ever done before. In fact, I served longer than any president's honor guard. And one of the reasons I joined the Air Force, let's go back a little bit, is that I thought if I joined the Air Force, I would see the world, travel all over. Well, I joined the Air Force and never left Washington, D.C. <laughs> served my entire time at the White House, never left. And, uh, and, uh, but I did, uh, stayed there close to uh, six years active and then four years reserve. And um, what happened is that the Lord really impressed upon my heart to go into ministry. And so I did something that no honor guard had did before. I resigned. Resigned and attended Oakwood College and studied ministry. So yeah. you were Seventh-day Adventist as an honor guard? Yes, one of the uh, only practicing Seventh-day Adventists to ever serve in the White House honor guard. And you served how many presidents? Three presidents. Outstanding. Outstanding. And um, it was just a blessing. Um, um, my experience there at Oakwood College, and then from there I pastored in my home city of Portland, Oregon for five years. And then I received a, uh, a call to pastor just outside of the Washington, D.C. area at Tacoma Park, a church called Sligo Seventh-day Adventist Church, the uh, kind of the sister church to Loma Linda. And I pastored there for 14 years, and that's why I served uh, for the last 14 years uh, there to Sligo Church. Now, I know that you and uh, my recently deceased mother had a lot of conversations in California. She used to always talk about you. And I think she and my wife are always anxious to get you hooked up in a oh. Mrs. Johnson. Really. Did that ever happen? We're still praying. Oh, all right. <laughs> we'll we'll put right. it that way. I'm right. always open to the Lord now. That's <laughs> all right. So in fact, I finally have time to slow down a little bit. Um, uh, when I first attended Sligo, the youth program, um, we had around 20 kids that were attending, and we were able to grow that youth program to close to 300 kids every Saturday morning. Beautiful. And so that was my energy and passion was that, and then we started a young adult program up, which grew to around 150 young adults that would attend. And more recently, um, I've been asked um, to serve in a new position that there's only seven of us in the United States that are doing this. I currently serve as a radio chaplain uh, at the uh, second largest radio station in the United States that's owned and operated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, uh, we have around 600,000 weekly listeners. Um, mm -hmm. Out of that 600,000 weekly listeners, they discovered something in January 40% of them do not belong to any church or congregation. Mm. So we're talking about 280,000 people weekly. And so my job now is to be the pastor for those 280,000 people. And you wrote this book. Amen, everybody? Praise the Lord. And you wrote this book how long ago? Uh, that was my uh, third book that I wrote. and I, uh, That was written around three years ago. Okay. Uh, aim high. And you have some of them with you for this afternoon. I, I hope. hope they came in, and so okay. we're hoping that when I... <laughs> My final question before we hear from uh, Dr. Peterson again is how many countries have you visited now? You didn't do it in the, arm, the, 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 the guard position, but since then, what's happened? And that's interesting. Like I said, I, I thought I would travel the world, never left a, the Washington, D.C. As a, as a military person, but once I started serving the Lord, I have been be able to I've been able to preach at 67 countries around the world. 67. So if you want to travel, get in ministry. Don't do it in the military. Just put it that way. Amen. Thank you. A hearty amen, please, for Thank Pastor you. John.
It was one o'clock in the morning. They woke us up. And we moved out under blackout conditions for about three hours. And about uh, when the sun came up, we found ourselves on top of a mountain with the clouds just below us as thick as a carpet. It was the most beautiful sight you could imagine. And as the sun came up and burned off the clouds, we looked down and there was the Imjim River and the DMZ and North Korea. And we said to ourselves, in the midst of turmoil, there was peace and beauty. Only God can do that for us.
first, I just want to thank you so much for taking time to honor our veterans. A few years ago, around actually 12 years ago, we started um, having a veterans program um, at our church there at Sligo. And I tell you, it has become one of the largest programs that we do. In fact, we've gotten to the point where we have almost 300 visitors uh, that will come out for our Veterans Day program. And so I just want to encourage you uh, to keep doing this. As I often tell people, this is not a, 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 a praise of war. In fact, most veterans will tell you in the words of Franklin Roosevelt, I have seen war, I have been in war, and I hate war. That this is not that, but this is simply taking time to honor the men and women who the freedoms that we have are a result of what they have done. And to make it even plain, as my Louisiana grandpa would say, you can't have the milk from the cow and not like the cow. And so in other words, the benefits that we get, that someone had to stand up for those benefits. They didn't just happen by accident. That uh, uh, there are many men and women who are lonely, who, who whether they volunteered or whether they were drafted, but they went in uh, for that we could have the freedoms that we all enjoy in this country. And so I read a bumper sticker just the other day that said this, that if you can read this in freedom, thank a veteran, because that's what it really boils down to. And so I just, once again, just thank the Abundant Life Church for doing this. And this is something I just want to encourage you to keep doing, because this is just a, a way of honoring those men and women who've made such a sacrifice for us. Um, I, once again, I also want to thank um, Dr. Rock's mom, it was so funny how she would do. Um, um, I, would, uh, I don't know, you're going to understand why I struggled a little bit, but I was at Loma Linda and also at La Sierra uh, working on a master's program. And I would get to the point that I was ready to quit. There was at least four times. And Dr. Rock, your mom would always do this. She would invite me over for dinner. She knew I would come if she invited me for dinner. And I would get there thinking it was going to be a great big meal, and yes, she would have one of the best meals, and then afterwards, she would sit me down and, boy, you are not going to quit. You are going to finish that program. And I would give her all the excuses, no, you're not going to quit. You're going to finish. In fact, you bring your homework to me and let me look at it. And so I would have to take my homework, and she would look over it and make her little suggestions and give it back to me. And, and, uh, and she did that for almost my three years. There And every time I was ready to quit, she would call me back in, have that dinner for me. And I was so naive, I would forget about that she had, oh, and I would go over again. But the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. And I was just so honored uh, when I was able to graduate that program and have her there. That was just one of the um, just things. And I dedicated that day to her because she was just such a one, uh, one of the ones that just influenced me to, uh, to finish that program. Now, an interesting thing happened when I was coming here, I spoke to a person and I told him I was coming to Las Vegas and the first thing they told me was you got to go and visit the Abundant Life Church. I said, well, that's what I'm going to be speaking at. I was speaking to another friend and we were talking and somehow I mentioned where I was going this week. He said, you know what? You got to go to the Abundant Life Church. I can't tell not. I was interviewing for our radio program, Dr. Barry Black. At the end of the interview, you got, if you're going to Las Vegas, make sure you stop by the, uh, I said, the Abundant Life Church. That's where I'm speaking at. And so I say that to say, y'all are well known all throughout the Washington, D.C. area. 
And finally, I want to say hello to my mother. She's listening by internet streaming there in Portland, Oregon. And so, Mom, hello to you. I'll be home for Christmas. All right. <laughs> now, I had the chance, as I said earlier, to serve in the President's Honor Guard at the White House. And all I can tell you is this, that I was humbled very early. And let me explain to you what happened. Now, as an honor guard, since we're with the president and uh, when he's getting ready to speak and different things, they have one rule. They make it very simple. You're never allowed to speak to the president of the United States unless he speaks to you first. Because a lot of times he'll be getting ready to make a big speech and he wants to get his thoughts together. And the last thing he needs is one of the honor guards start talking to him. Now, the honor guard is made up, at least the Air Force honor guard, is made up of the men and women um, who they feel that will represent the United States Air Force uh, there at the White House. There's 125 that they choose. And out in that, at that particular time, we had 600,000 people in the Air Force, and they chose 125 to actually serve at the White House, and that's what I had the privilege of doing. Now, this evening, you're going to have a chance to hear a little bit more about that. In fact, I'm going to do something I have never, I really don't do that often. I'm going to let you ask questions, and you can even think of now the questions that you want to ask about the presidents and all that stuff. And I will tell you the truth. Well, we're in training, and after you finish your normal training, basic training, you go to your school training in military, and then from there, I was selected from the President's Honor Guard. Then you start up a whole other basic training to see if you're going to qualify to be part of the Honor Guard at the White House. Now, they let you know from the very beginning, their whole job is to get you to quit, because they do not, they just want the best of the best in there. And so it takes around 12 weeks, the training course, and so um, the first week, uh, the sergeant comes in our room and he calls us all in and he says, I'm going to tell you this one thing, y'all. Never talk to the president unless he talks to you first. In fact, you will get court-martialed if we see you ever interrupt the president or whatever and say, drill that in your head your very first day. Now, I made a mistake and I raised my hand and I asked the sergeant a question. He says, Johnson, you didn't understand what I just said? I said, yes. But if he speaks to us, then can we ask him a question? And the sergeant looked and said, I never thought about that. I guess you could. Johnson, quit interrupting my talk. <laughs> and so I took that as a yes. And so I started carrying around a little piece of paper in my pocket, and I would think of questions that I would ask the president of the United States if he ever talked to me. <laughs> I would be in the cafeteria, and I would think of a question. I would write it on my list. And it got so bad, y'all, I had 17 questions. And I had only been there two weeks. And so I'm there, and at the end of this particular day, two weeks of training, a sergeant comes in and he says, we need someone to open up a door for a banquet. Where's that Johnson at? He talks so much. So I raised my hand and said, Johnson, do you think you can handle that job? I said, yes, sir. And so that was my very first job, was simply going to the Hilton Hotel. And um, um, they said I would probably see a senator or a congressman. And it was very simple. They had a door right by the podium. And the Secret Service would be in the back of the ballroom. And they would give me the nod. I would simply open up the door. And the senator or congressperson would walk by me and go on the stage. Simple. Well, friends, I get there, and I have to be honest with you. It was the fanciest thing I had ever seen in my life. Ladies had evening gowns and tuxedos and stars and stripes. It was unbelievable. They had orchestras, violins, everything you can imagine. And my job was simply to stand there by the door. Finally, something happened. A Secret Service agent walks by me, 
goes on the platform, takes the microphone, and simply says this. I need everyone to please leave the room at this time. Please sit your instruments down, band members. Ladies, take your purses with you, and please leave the room. So people started leaving. I'm still there standing by the door. And then they brought in bomb-sniffing dogs. So I started to leave, and he says, no, 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 Airman, you stay there by the door. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is fine. This place blows up. I'm the only one in the room now. <laughs> so I'm horrified. I'm standing by the door. The dogs are looking for bombs. And Well, after around 45 minutes, they did something even stranger. They started setting up metal detectors like at the airport, all over. People started coming in again. They would look through their purses, and they would have everyone just take their seats. I'm still standing by the door. Well, finally, they give me the signal. I was so excited. I was going to see a senator or a congressman. I had called my family and told them to look at C-SPAN, and they could possibly see me. And so I'm there. I open up the door, and instead of a senator or a congressman, President Ronald Reagan steps out. I shouldn't have been near the president. They hadn't even checked my background yet. He had decided just an hour before that he wanted to come and make a few comments. So there I am standing next to the president of the United States of America. And I'm looking in, and, 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 and I had a little name tag on my uniform. He looks over and he simply says, Airman Johnson, how are you doing today? <laughs> my chance to talk to the president of the United States. 17 questions. It was so bad because the color guard, those are the men and women who carry the flags behind the president, they were facing his back. And they started whispering, that's Johnson, this is going to be good. They started moving their flags closer. <laughs> I looked at the president and I simply said, President Reagan, how's your wife, how's your captain? I couldn't get my name out of my mouth, I kid you not. It got so bad that Reagan got to sat there and started looking at my lips move and started laughing. <laughs> You're such a joker. <laughs> Reagan then goes up and starts making a speech. And as you know, he's known as a great communicator. He's given this powerful speech. All of a sudden, Reagan stops. He looks at the door, sees me, and starts laughing. <laughs> he says, I'm sorry, let me start over. I can't look at that guy by the door there. In fact, if you go to Blockbusters, there's a video called Presidential Bloopers. You'll see a much smaller me, but you'll see me making the President of the United States mess up in the middle of his speech. And so uh, I was humbled very fast after being in the White House there. <laughs> Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we get started here. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to spread the good news. Lord, I just pray in a special way today, may we all understand that you have something unique for all of us to do for you. Something that no one else could do it, just the way that we will do it. And so I pray, Lord, that my life will be just an example of your power and what you can do and what you're willing to do through anyone who submits their life to you. I thank you again, Lord, for your love and your kindness. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm currently attending a, uh, a doctorate program, and, and it's an interesting program because most people, you know, they're studying, studying, they're studying philosophy and all these different things. My doctorate is in storytelling. 
I'll be one of the first Seventh-day Adventists to hold a, a doctorate degree in storytelling. So I ask you to bear with me here today as I share with you the story of the good news. A person who I had the chance to meet many years ago, his name was Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. Now, Dr. Peale wrote a book many years ago called The Power of Positive Thinking. In fact, it was originally called The Power of Faith, that he believed that you have to have faith and that God could take any situation, whether good or bad, and make something out of it. Dr. Peale pastored the Marble Collegiate Church in New York City for 55 years. He retired at age 87. And even then, he still preached 200 times a year at different places. Now, he told me this story I'll never forget. He says, when I was a young man, age 85, his exact words, he says, I was coming into the church one day, and there was a gentleman waiting for me. And the gentleman simply went up to me and he says, are you Dr. Peel? I said, yes. Are you Dr. Peel, the one that always talks about no matter what we go through, God has a way of making things work out? He says, well, I've never been introduced that way, but uh, yes, I guess I am that guy. He says, Dr. Peel, I have just come here today to tell you one thing. I'm quitting Christianity. I quit all this stuff. Dr. Peel thought for a few moments and said, well, come in my office and let's have a talk. So they go in his office and Dr. Peel said, well, why are you quitting Christianity? Just tell me what's wrong. He says, I'll tell you what's wrong. It's one word. It's simply problems. He says, Dr. Peel, when I wake up in the morning, I start thinking I have problems. Have breakfast with my wife, we start talking, there's more problems. Get to work, there's more problems at work. Come home and talk to my kids, they got problems. So I've just decided that I, I quit all this stuff. This stuff just doesn't work. And Dr. Peel says, well, you know what? I was at a place the other day where no one had a problem. The guy perked up, he said, no one had a problem? Well, how many people were there? He says, I don't know, maybe 10,000. He says, where was this place at? He says, right here in New York City. He says, Dr. Pill, let me get this straight. There's a place in New York City where there's 10,000 people and no one has a problem? And Dr. Pill says, that's correct. He says, Dr. Pill, please take me there. I want to go right now. That's the place I want to go. And as some of you already imagined, Dr. Pill says, all right, if you want to go to Roseland Cemetery, I'll drive you there myself. <laughs> You see, no matter how long you live in life, you're going to face challenges. But I love the words of Harriet Tubman when she says that I love to have problems. In fact, the interviewer said to her, he says, what do you mean you love to have problems? She says, because if I didn't have a problem, I wouldn't know what a miracle was. <laughs> Friends, I believe that. If we didn't have problems... There would be no such thing as miracles. That I believe that God has miracles for you in life. If you still have breath that you can breathe, you can still be used by the Lord. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you one more time to turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 10. And we're going to read a story of a person who had problems. That's the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. 
And it simply says this, that they, then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus with his disciples together, a large crowd was leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. Bartimaeus. Now, what you have to understand that Bartimaeus was not even his name. That simply meant that he was the son of Timaeus. So we have a nameless person here who definitely has a problem, a situation that seems hopeless. In fact, if you were to study a little bit more of people with handicaps in those days, that most likely Bartimaeus would wake up in the morning and have to beg someone to take him to the city gates. He would beg almost 16 hours, and then he would have to beg someone to take him back home again. Can you just think about that for a moment? Begging someone to take you to go beg, begging all day long, and then begging someone to take you back home again. Day after day after day. We're talking about problems. Now the word of God says this, that when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth coming near, he began to cry out something. And I like to say what he cried out proved that he wasn't blind. And you may say, well, pastor, it says he's blind. What are you talking about? Well, he used a phrase or a term that said, son of David, which meant a, a, a title for the true Messiah. So in other words, Bartimaeus may have been physically blind, but he was not spiritually blind. Because there were many there who could physically see, but they could not spiritually see. And that teaches us a very valuable lesson that no matter how low you might be in life, no matter what problem may seem like it's overtaking you, you can always have spiritual sight. In fact, it said that many told him to be quiet. Now, some of the same people who probably took him to go beg, when he could have gotten his help, now they're telling him to be quiet. Many of you, when you have faced challenges, you face that situation that seems impossible, that child that you've prayed for for so long, and you've talked to friends and you talk to family, and they simply tell you, oh, this ain't nothing gonna happen. Just, and that's so easy, it could have been the end of the story with Bartimaeus. But the scripture says this, that instead of being quiet, he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. May that be an example to all of us when we face challenges, that we can always cry out to Jesus, no matter how low we might find ourselves. Now, if I could just take you back in time just a little bit, 
If you could just picture a little second grader, I mean, he's a little cute fellow. Except the only thing is that he's bigger than the rest of the kids. In fact, when he was born, he weighed 11 pounds and 12 ounces. That's right, his poor mother, that's exactly right. <laughs> now this little kid had something going because he loved people. He loved to talk. He was energetic. But something in the second grade happened that forever changed his life. You see, the school system was trying to figure a way to save money, and so what they decided to do was to close down all the little elementary schools and to create what they called a mega elementary school. And so the second grade teacher went from teaching a class of 17 students to teaching a class of 57 students. Can you just imagine that? 57 students, one teacher, all in order to save money. So she decided she would divide the class into three sections. She would put the, the, the kids who could learn very fast in the first couple of rows. The next section were kids who kind of struggled a little bit, but they could eventually catch up. And the third section were for kids who were in their own world. Well, this little fella started off in the front row because he loved people. He was energetic. And then something happened that forever changed his life. <laughs> You see, the teacher was simply writing something on the chalkboard. And then she turned around and said this. I need someone to say their ABCs and to write them on the board here. And this little fellow sitting in the front row, he started thinking to himself, don't pick me, please don't pick me. And you know exactly what happens when that, you, come up here. The little fellow goes up to the chalkboard and he writes A, and then he writes his B, and he wrote his B, all the kids started laughing, and he couldn't understand. And then when he wrote his C, they really started laughing. And then he froze. And the teacher discovered something right there and then. This little fella could neither read nor write. He had been faking it. It started to make sense to her every time they were reading out loud that he would have to go to the bathroom or he would drop a book and he would do. And so the very next day, he was in the second row. Well, within a week, he was in the third section. By the next week, he was simply in the back of the class with a coloring book. Boy, he thought, oh, I love school. This is so good. All I have to do is color. And he would be so happy, he would be back there just coloring away. He thought, well, this is so good. Well, one day something happened that had an influence on him. Another teacher walked in and, and she was asking some questions and she saw the little fellow in the back coloring by himself. And she said, well, why is he back there? And the teacher didn't know that the little fellow could hear her. And the teacher simply said this. He's just a little retarded, so we're going to just let him stay back there until the end of the school year and get him out of here. Now, the little fellow didn't know what that word meant, but when he started asking around, the very next day, he wouldn't even color anymore. He would just sit there. Well, finally, the teacher called in a psychologist that was part of the public school system. They took the little fellow started asking him questions and doing different things, and he stayed there for almost a month, every day, visiting the psychologist. 
Finally, at the end of four weeks, a psychologist said, now, you've been, we see that you've had some problems, and if you say your ABCs, and you can get out of here. And the little fellow said, A, B, C. And once again, he froze. So the psychologist sent his recommendations to the superintendent's office that next week, that little fellow's mother got a letter in the mail. And in those days, the superintendent was appointed by the governor himself. In fact, if you were to visit our family home there in Portland, you would look in our family Bible and you would see a copy of original letter. Normally I carry it with me and let people see with their own eyes. And it simply says this, Terry L. Johnson, that's me, is mentally incompetent. He will never be able to learn past the third grade. Our suggestion is to take him out of the school system and place him in a school for kids with severe disabilities. Hopefully by the age of 18, he will learn a trill, a steal, or a trade and be able to fit back into society. Visiting rights every four months from his parents. Signed, the superintendent of the state of Oregon. We're talking about problems. Now, you have to understand this. Now, now you have a teacher saying that the little fellow can't read. You have a psychologist who had tested him and did all this stuff, once again said that I agree with the teacher. This fellow will never be able to learn past the third grade. And now you have the superintendent appointed by the governor saying that we have reviewed everything. We have put our stamp on it. Now, there's one thing that they didn't count on. And let me tell you what that was. A praying mother. You see, friends, I have one of those old-fashioned mothers that believes in the power of prayer, that believes that God still does miracles, that God still can take situations that seem impossible and make them possible. Instead of giving up, my mother decided to look up, as I say. There are many of you here today the only reason you are where you are right now is because somebody prayed for you. It could have been a mother, a grandmother, a grandfather, but somebody prayed for you. Don't ever get so confident that you think you are where you are because of you. You're only where you are because someone got on their knees years ago, and that person may be resting in the Lord right now, but they said, Lord, please be with my little daughter. Please, Lord, help her to know you one day. Lord, please be with my grandson. I know he may not be, have it all, but Lord, please be with my grandson. Don't you know that the Lord is still honoring those prayers? I don't care if you're 90 or nine years old. Many of us are where we are because someone prayed for us. I remember that summer like it was yesterday. Every night my mother would pray over me. I would just hear her cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need you to do a miracle for my son. I understand what they have said, but Lord, please do a miracle. Every night, that same exact prayer. In fact, mother took that prayer into action, and if you were to look in that same family Bible, you would see another piece of paper with 110 different elementary schools written on it. You see, mother made a list of all the schools that she could find. She was going to move me back to Louisiana, anything it would take to get me into a normal system. 
And mother's extremely honest. So when the principal would talk to her and, they, and she would say, well, he can't go back to his old school. And they would say, why? And mother would simply say, well, they say he's mentally retarded. They said, who said that? Well, the, super, the superintendent. That's my boss's boss's boss. Well, they don't know. My, the Lord has told me that it's, the Lord has told you. And they would just hang up the phone on her. And mother would put a line through that school and call the next one. All summer long. She finally got down to, I'll never forget this, number 109. And it was a school called Elliot. I will never forget that. And we thought for sure that was going to be the miracle. Well, they told her no once again. Well, later that day, a neighbor was speaking with my mom and said, you know, my grandkids went to that little non-denominational school, Columbia Christian. I don't know if they're even still there. So mother goes over to this school and she meets with the principal. And as she's talking with the principal, he listens to her. And finally, he says, Mrs. Johnson, you know, we're a small school. I could never ask a teacher to take that much time with one student. But at least let me pray with you. And mother said she will never forget that that man got on his knees and they started praying. Now, that principal, I had a chance to interview him for another book we were working on. And he said, I did something with your mom that I have never did in my 37 years of being a principal. He says, normally when I have a very important conversation, I close the door. But for whatever reason, I left the door open. He says, now I understand why I did that. You see, there was a teacher that was coming to ask the principal a question. And so she didn't think it was that important a conversation. So she stood there and listened to the whole conversation, the prayer and everything. And so when my mom walked out and thanked the principal, that teacher walked in. And that teacher simply said this. What grade would the little fellow be in? He says, who are you talking about? The lady who was just here. What, what grade would, what would he? He says, well, I guess he would have to do the second grade over again if he didn't learn it. Well, you know, that was my, that's my class this year. And he said, yes. He says, let me have him. He said, Mrs. Sherlock, you just, that's just too much responsibility. That, that's, she says, I'll make a deal. Let me have him for six months. And if he can't learn to read in six months, and we can get him out of here, but at least we can say we tried. And so I will never forget that very first day of class. She's there, and she's doing something up front, and all of a sudden you could hear a squeak, squeak, squeak. She turned around and said, who's making that noise in my classroom? And it was me, and I had my desk, and I was pulling it to the corner. You see, words can be a very powerful thing that I thought I could not sit with the rest of the kids. That I, I did. She walked over to me and says, what do you think you're doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the corner. I always sit in the corner. She says, well, not in my class. She did the strangest thing. She picked up the entire desk, <laughs> brought it to the front row and sat it down and says, you're going to sit right here. I'm going to give the rest of the kids their assignment and I'll be right back. I thought, I like this lady. Well, she came back with nothing but a Bible, pulled up her chair, sat her Bible down and says, all right, we're going to work on your reading. What does the letter look like to you? That's all I'm telling you to do. look there and just say, what does it look like? Does it look like an orange or oats? What does it look like? And I looked at her and I said, I can't. She says, what'd you just say? I said, I can't read. 
says, well, I better never hear the word. Can't, don't, quit, give up. If I hear any of those words in my classroom again, you're going to get it. All I'm asking you to do is to tell me what does the letter look like? And once again, I said, I can't. She says, wait right here, I have the cure. I'm thinking, I like this lady. She's put me in the front row, maybe she's gonna come back with some glasses or a magnifying glass. I like her. Well, she came back all right. Now, some of us remember those old days when they could still spank in stool. She came back with a 12-inch ruler. She sat it right next to that Bible and said, if you say one more negative word, you're gonna get it. All I'm asking you to do is to try. What does the letter look like? And once again, I said, I can't. She took that ruler and went, pow, right on my hand. And from that moment on, I thought she was the meanest lady in the world. <laughs> and I will never forget Mrs. Sherlock as long as I live. She was five foot tall and five foot wide. Bless her heart, I'm telling you. Every day, she would pull out that ruler and that Bible in her chair. We're going to work on your reading. During recess, all the kids could play. The first 15 minutes of the 30 minutes, she would have me stay in. She would take out her Bible, take out the ruler. We're going to work on your reading. Every day after school, while the other kids could play, while the buses were lined up, she would take out her ruler and her Bible. Day after day after day. Well, the only thing I can tell you is this. At the end of six months, to everyone's amazement, Terry Johnson was reading and writing. Absolutely a miracle. We're talking about problems. In fact, I remember when I first made the presidential honor guard at the White House, anyone who's going to be within 10 feet of the president of the United States on a regular basis, whether you're Secret Service, FBI, anything like that, you have to take what we call a presidential psychological examination. And that's just a fancy test to see if you're crazy or not. That's what it boils down to. Now, it's three days worth of testing. And at the end of the three days, they said everyone had passed. And so everyone was all excited and different things. And they said, well, except we would like to see an Airman Johnson. And I remember some of the guys, Secret Service guys I became friends with, they started walking by me. Man, you must have cheated. They're going to get you, man. And I'm horrified. Why do they want to see me for? And so I, I, I was smart. I thought, if they're going to arrest me, at least let me wait until everyone leaves the room. So I started acting like I was getting stuff out of my bag and taking my time. And when the last person left, I walked over to the instructor, and as I got close to her, she got a great big smile on her face. He says, are you Airman Johnson? I said, yes. She says, I want to shake your hand. She says, shake my hand? Okay. She says, we've called the news reporter. CNN's going to be up here in a few minutes. ABC News, NBC News. This is so exciting. Exciting? She says, we're taking bets on you downstairs. Taking bets on me? He says, don't you know? I said, no, what? what? You're going to be the first handicapped person to work for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Handicap? <laughs> I said, oh, you have the wrong. She says, no, no, no. He says, we're taking bets on you because you have one of the worst cases of dyslexia we've ever seen in our life. And we're trying to figure out how in the world you're reading at a college level. This does not make any sense. She said, did they use this formula? She started naming all these fancy tests and all. I said, ma'am, I've never done any of that stuff. 
says, oh, no, no, no. What, what, what did they? And I said, the only way I learned to lead, read was Mrs. Sherlock using the Bible. And when I said that, she really got mad. You better tell us the truth. We know we're going to do a background check on you. I said, ma'am, that's the only thing I can tell you. In fact, it was interesting because when they did my uh, presidential background check, now it was $80,000. That was in the 80s now. And I will never forget, they went to my little, little Adventist Academy and they went to the principal and they couldn't tell why they were there. The FBI, they could only say, by order of the President of the United States, we need to see every file or record you have on Airman Johnson. And they said, the principal said at that time, I knew he was going to get in trouble one day. I knew this was coming. That, I knew it. And so I, I love when I get the chance to go back after I got in to tell him I was really doing that. But don't you know, in my presidential honor guard files, it says that the only thing we can trace Terry Johnson learning to read was a teacher in the second grade using a Bible. That's actually in my White House records. So friends, that's why I say that there's nothing so difficult for God. God has a plan for you. A situation that you might think that's impossible right now. A child that you've been praying for for such a long time. Nothing is impossible with God. In fact, I love in our passage here, it says that Jesus stood still. So in the midst of all the confusion and don't call him, don't do Jesus heard Bartimaeus' prayer. In the confusion of your life, Jesus will stop if you call him. Jesus stopped for a mother with a little boy who couldn't read. Maybe you're facing a financial problem right now that seems impossible. Maybe a health concern. Maybe someone you've prayed for for such a long time. I'm here to say that that same Jesus that stood still for Bartimaeus will stand still for you. Bartimaeus did three simple things. If you don't remember anything else I have said today, Remember the three things that Bartimaeus did. A, B, C. A, he asked Jesus for help. He didn't let people around him influence him and to tell him that the situation is too impossible. It's too difficult. B, he believed that Jesus really could make a difference. Now, many of us, we have no problem asking. We have no problem saying that we believe. But when it boils down to it, do we really believe that God can make a difference? In fact, the scripture tells us the good news that even if you struggle with belief, you can cry out to God and say, Lord, help my unbelief. He doesn't leave us hopeless. And finally, Bartimaeus claimed his victory. He could see it. A, B, C, asked, believe, claim your victory. So no matter what you might be facing right now, 
Ask Jesus for help. Believe in your heart that, 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 that he knows exactly what he's doing. You see, many of us struggle with the belief part because we try to use our human reasoning with it. But we can't do that because, you see, God sees the entire picture. And part of belief comes trust. And we have to trust that God knows exactly what he's doing. That's what we really have to understand. You see, God has his own timing. I remember my dad, my father passed away when I was nine years old. And I remember just recently I was talking with my mother and we were laughing. I said, you remember father used to love puzzles? And she looked at me, and this is just a few weeks ago, she said, puzzles? Your father didn't like puzzles? I said, no, no, mom, remember he would always bring me these puzzles? She says, you never knew, did you? I said, what? You see, when I was around five years old, he would bring home puzzles for me. You know, like those ones that would just be five pieces, great big pieces. And he would give me the puzzle, and he would dump it out, and I would always do this. I would instantly try to put the puzzle together. And I would be trying to hammer it and trying to make it work and fit it, and it would never work. He would sit there and laugh. And then what he would do, he would finally, after my frustration, he would step aside, let me do this. And he would put it together perfectly. Now, what I didn't know was that he would always sit to cover in the distance what he could see, what the picture looked like. And he thought it was so funny that I never took time to even see what the bigger picture looked like. I was so busy trying to make it fit the way I wanted to fit. And that taught me a very valuable lesson with belief. You have to understand that our Heavenly Father sees the big picture in our life. We can't do that. So, yes, you may say, Lord, I want it to be this way. And he said, no, no, no. Part of belief is trusting me. That I know that if I put piece A there, that's going to affect piece B. And that's going to, it's all going to come together. But what we do is that when we can't put it exactly the way we want it, we quit. We give up. We say God's not fair. God is difficult. But friends, we have to stop and realize that part of that belief is trusting he knows what he's doing. I think of my mother. If she would have just at any time along there would have given up or quit, that would have been the end of Terry Johnson. If Bartimaeus would have given up or quit, he would have never gotten his miracle. Finally, claim your victory. You can be happy. You can rejoice. You can leave here saying, Lord, I've turned it over to you. I may not see the end right now, but I know that you have my best interest in mind. Oh, friends, if we really learn how to use ABC, our life will be so much easier. As we conclude here, there's a story that I want to share with you. One of the things I decided to do was to get my license as been a chaplain. And that's what, uh, one of the things I was doing at Loma Linda. And the reason I decided to also to get a chaplain's license was because many young people who are in the jail systems, they suffer from different learning disabilities. And wherever I'm at, in fact, if I was here longer, I would find out the nearest jail and I would try to arrange to go in to talk because so many of them can relate. 
When I was back in Oregon, we had a Seventh-day Adventist chaplain who was in charge of the Oregon State Penitentiary. And he said something to me when I first arrived back pastoring. He says, Terry, if I could just get you in the system to talk to some of these fellows, I know it would make such a difference. They would relate to the neighborhood you talk about, all that. And I said, well, man, I would love to go. So that was it. Well, I never heard from the chaplain anymore. Three years later, he finally contacted me. And he said, Terry, it's arranged. Now, this is the only deal is that we're going to do something we haven't done before. We're going to bring as many prisoners as we can together. We're going to have a platform made.